welcome to Two Boomer Women. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've been talking with Boomer women for almost a decade now. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been talking to Boomer women all my adult life. Uh, Reinventing myself several times along the way, though, but always focused on us, Boomer women. With this incarnation of Two Boomer Women, I'll be interviewing other women who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at twoboomerwomen.com. If you want to be a guest on Two Boomer Women, bring it on. There's an application form at the website, too. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value. We know how to do it and we must perpetuate the art form. So, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Two Boomer Women Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. We're into December now, and with the end of the year in sight, I'm really appreciative of the gifts, guests, gifts, I sometimes say that, but my guests are gifts, who have agreed to see out the old year with us as we plan for another start in 2022. The new year seems to bring with it the suggestion, if not the promise, of a new beginning. At our age, I think we're mostly done with resolutions, if (laughs) they even see the end of January, it's a surprise. We do often, now and on our birthdays, take some stock of our lives and try and make a few improvements, or, or think about how we can bring contentment to our third act, and yes, I just threw in air quotes there. Today's subject can be a monumental one in the lives of some, but with the help of today's guest, we're going to visit its meaning, its potential, and how it might become a part of who we are and what we're capable of. It could mean a long episode, but we're going to unpack it. And that subject is forgiveness. I've probably done more research in today's, into today's episode than any episode yet. I always come into a conversation with notes as well as questions, But the more I read and listened and watched, the more I realized the subject of forgiveness is probably the least one-size-fits-all of any subject I've researched. By the time we're in our 50s, 60s, 70s, we might have a few demons in the closet. Demons that hold us back from true joy or being the person we could be. Demons that might be exercised if we could reach a place of forgiveness. As the new year approaches, it seems like a good time to visit this subject, and fortunately, my guest is available. Louisa Hext is the North American Coordinator for the Traveling Photographic Exhibition, The F Word, Stories of Forgiveness. It's a program of the Forgiveness Project, a London, UK-based non-profit, and she's a member of the Charter for Compassion's global team, managing the restorative justice sector. Louisa? Thank you so much for being here today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Louisa, I have mostly questions today. And while I've certainly thought about the act of forgiveness, I'm not sure I have enough knowledge to add much in the way of conversation. And isn't that a first? (laughs) (laughs) And please, some of this is new territory for me. So if I misuse a word, please correct me. I'm going to jump in with a question I've been unable to answer this week. Is there a single or an easy definition for forgiveness? Is that a joke? I would imagine I'm looking and I'm thinking and there is not. Good. Okay. I'm, I'm not even here to give you a definition. I'm here to offer space for inquiry. And it sounds a little circuitous in the sense that you ask me a question and I offer back to you well there isn't one definition you can look up in the Webster's Dictionary a definition or even in the Oxford Dictionary or many dictionaries in fact that's a question that I ask people if they have their own definition of forgiveness and forgiveness For me, there's a lot of ambivalence there. Like, what do I mean when I talk about forgiveness? I know that it's messy. I know that it's complicated. And I know that it means many different things to many different people. So I'm not even sure I'm answering your question. At least it's a start. 
Well, you are, because first of all, I feel better for not being able to form a, a definition or a meaning. And I also started by saying this is the least one size fits all. So, and I think you've just answered that, like for, for every person, if I'm hearing correctly, yeah, there is their own definition. Some people even break down the words. They talk about the for, F-O-R, and give. And so they think about it through the lens of giving. And that's an interesting perspective through my own lens. The biggest distinction for me when we talk about forgiveness is that forgiveness for me is a gift that you offer to someone else. The distinction being it's not something necessary that we can ask for. We do ask for it. However, that places the burden on the other person and oftentimes the person who's been harmed to be doing the work to make the other person feel less uncomfortable or less whatever they may feel. And so the language of forgiveness uh, can be unpacked in a multitude of ways as potentially a journey without a destination. Yet what it means to each and every one of us is entirely different. And some people don't even use that in their vocabulary. They'll use other language as they move forward on their journey, which might be restorative, redemptive, apologetic. It might be not forgiving, but it's so many different things. Okay, so we also hear about self-forgiveness. What's the difference between forgiveness and self-forgiveness? I would say that there isn't a difference per se if we think of forgiveness being the umbrella for everything that can come underneath it one of the actions that we take is forgiveness of self. And what I've heard in my conversations with people, when I ask them to talk about self-forgiveness and I ask them to consider whether it's potentially one of the most difficult things to acquire or to to get to, people, I would say, 99% of the time respond almost immediately with absolutely self-forgiveness is the hardest form of forgiveness. That forgiveness of self is really, really challenging. Others say maybe in addition to it being more or most difficult is that one has to forgive self before one can potentially forgive anyone else. I'm not sure about that. But there's this whole story of one has to be forgiving of self because if one is not kind to oneself, how can one possibly be kind to another? I'm not saying that that has to be the case or that there's an order, but that's come up. And something that's really powerful as you talk about self-forgiveness is a quote that I'm going to share from former Archbishop Desmond Tutu because he talks about altruism and he talks about self-interest. Altruism being we're good and gracious to the external world. We're helping others. We're kind. Self-interest, something more about what's happening within us. And when Marina Cantacuzino, who founded the organization, The Forgiveness Project in 2004, met with former Archbishop Desmond Tutu with photographer Brian Moody, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about this organization. He said, in response to her question, do you think this is a good idea that we should travel globally and capture stories of people who have moved from a place of vengeance, a place of revenge, a place of unforgiveness to a place of letting go, uh, restoring, 
releasing, forgiving, whatever it may be. Do you think it's a good idea? And this is what he said. To forgive is not just to be altruistic. It is the best form of self-interest, meaning that self-forgiveness is key. It's kind of a long-winded response. But I think it's a pretty good answer to your question. It's a great answer because it also covered off a couple more questions I had in the lineup. So are... I think you may have answered. I don't know if you've answered this. Are are people natural forgivers or is it an action that can be learned or arrived at? I think the important thing for me to talk about is that I'm not a researcher. I'm not an academic scientist. So I have a perspective that I believe is all powerful. And my answer to the question somebody could come back and say, well, the hypothesis says that what you just said is not true. Let me tell you my experience. I believe on my life journey with my own experience of forgiveness, also the stories that I hear of others in direct conversations that we are hardwired for forgiveness. However, there are certain people who have the propensity to be more forgiving than others. And there are a few strategies that come into play when we think about forgiveness and those that tend to be better at it or not as good. And I learned this from Marina Cantacuzino because she has a ton more experience than I do. And she's absolutely right on. It's, it's a qualitative response to the question, okay? Those who are curious people tend to be better at forgiving. Those who have empathy tend to be more drawn to forgiving. One of my other favorite quotes that relate to curiosity and empathy come from one of my favorite authors, Harper Lee, from To Kill a Mockingbird. And you know the character Atticus Finch, the attorney Atticus Finch and his daughter Scout. And he says to Scout, you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view unless you climb inside their skin and walk around in it. It's a little bit of paraphrasing going on. If you have empathy for another person and you're curious about what led a person to behave in a certain way, I think there's a possibility that you might be more willing to recognize If they had lived their life, maybe they would have done those things. And therefore, is there a level of forgiveness there? I I also think your life's journey and your lived experience drives you in a particular direction or not. My hope for the world and the people that live in it are that we are forgiving people and that we can learn strategies and skills. Although I'm less inclined to teach forgiveness. Like if you do this, 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 and this, then you become a forgiving person because then it puts you inside of a box. And what happens if you don't do this, this, and this? Are you curious, Agnes? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a few thoughts going on in my head, and, and I don't want to pursue them because they go on to other subjects. Okay. But I, I was going to ask if you need empathy for another person or their actions in order to forgive them, and it sounds like you will forgive them more easily, quickly. I'm not sure which is the correct word there. Than if you don't have empathy 
but it's not a requirement okay yeah i can give a, an example maybe a real example that could be helpful would mm-hmm. that be yeah no absolutely i have a colleague and friend in the twin cities and her name is mary johnson and mary johnson lost her one and only son Laramian in 1993 he was 20 years old and he was murdered by a young man named O'Shea Israel I say young man because O'Shea was 16 when he pulled the trigger it was an after hours party that led to a 25 year sentence for second degree murder And many years later, Mary visited O'Shea in prison. And since his release in 2010, they've lived as neighbors in the North Side community of Minneapolis. For Mary, who was a devout Christian at the time and continues to be, she couldn't imagine, she couldn't fathom. How could she possibly forgive a person or even want anything to do with a person? that could shoot and kill her son in cold blood. And so for the first seven years, she wanted very little to do with this man. She wanted him to be really locked up and the key thrown away. And as the years passed, she developed this interest and curiosity in sitting across the table from him and considering why he did what he did and considering how that might have any indication of any healing for her. So there was this curiosity and she initiated the contact. And I think for a couple times he refused. And that is a different story. You can ask later if you want to know why he refused, which is kind of interesting. Ultimately, they sat across the table from one another and they listened to one another. He heard her story and she heard his story. And there was a bridging across the divide there, across that table. When they met, O'Shea was still incarcerated in a Minnesota prison and there was healing. And the journey started, or at least continued at that point. She'd had a journey up until that point, entirely separated. Her experience was an experience of restorative practice, which occurs in many prison settings, in community settings, in schools. And I want to separate the language of forgiveness from restorative practice. However, what I want to offer is the fact that there was this curiosity, I believe, that could help her heal. And when she listened to his story, I believe there was a layer or layers of empathy that led her to go on that journey. And she recognized, this is not in her words, it's my words, that there was a place of moving forward. The world was moving forward. The past was in the past. It's not about forgiving the act. It's about that person taking responsibility for the action. And it's not about forgetting either. It was an opportunity for her to separate those things and to be able to move forward because she was stuck. And people who stay in the past and can't move forward are at much greater risk of health conditions, of mental health challenges, of not living full and vibrant lives. And that was a very, very wordy response. No, no, it, it was great because my next question, you, you told a story which leads exactly into my next question, that we hear stories of forgiveness, if not in our own lives and you know, possibly in our communities, that can seem astounding in their generosity. Can hearing stories of forgiveness help us find a path to that action or at least consider it as an option? 
I think there's no, I think absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And very specifically the stories that exist in the archive of the forgiveness project and nonprofit that was founded in 2004 in London, United Kingdom by Marina Cantacuzino demonstrate that incredibly. This is really profound, I think, because the backdrop to the organization being born, if you step back even further, Marina was engaged in a private project. This was not supposed to be a public thing. It was not supposed to be a charity or an organization. It was supposed to be a private project gathering stories of people to be shared in the format of first-person conversation and photography and actually first-person narrative and photography. And the photographer, Brian Moody, traveled with Marina, who is a journalist, during the early years and gathered these stories. And there was an exhibit at the Oxo Gallery on the South Bank in London that was installed for two weeks. And she expected that people would come and view that exhibit maybe come back again. There were catalogs. I think there were 3,000 catalogs that were sold in the space of time of that exhibit and media from around the world. And she was shocked because she thought this was an exhibit that would come and go. And there was so much interest that the organization was founded from the exhibit So it is extremely organic as to how the Forgiveness Project as an organization started out of this exhibit. Just quite amazing if you think about it. Yeah. Rose, I have a dog that is making noises. When I just turned around and did this, it was because my dog was making noises behind me. And I'm always glad when other people's dogs make noises. You edit that out? Or not? No, she was not, not usually, no, because, I mean, my dog barks. She does all sorts of things. She snores. <laughs> so she's been snoring, and now she's right here. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Rose, come on. So is it necessary to have the person in front of you to forgive them? Like, like what if they're dead or something? That's okay. It's not necessary to have the person in front of you. It's not necessary for the person to be alive. When you ask that question, it makes me think about who's forgiveness really for? Is forgiveness for yourself or is forgiveness for another person? Or is forgiveness for both of you? And in reality, when I think about forgiveness for another person, I think it's releasing self and being able to move on and not being stuck and not being heavy hearted or hard hearted or closed, but having a heart open, peaceful existence. That is for me anyway, on on my journey. However, I do notice in my conversations with people that they would like to have that person present. They would like to look them in the eyes. They would like to be listened to. And those individuals may also have the curiosity to learn about what led the other person to do what they did. There was a man by the name of Shad Ali, who unfortunately has passed on. Shad survived a brutal attack in London on a high street, main street, going to the defense of two women who were brown-skinned, Southeast Asian descent, who were being cornered by a man who was white, who was yelling and screaming expletives at them and harassing them. And Shad, who looked like them, went to their defense and was brutally attacked. And when he woke up in the hospital, 
his first interest, surrounded by his family who were fully charged and resentful, was to wonder how someone could hurt someone that much and not really care. And he wanted to have a better understanding. And it leads me back to those restorative conversations that people have, where having that person present is healing in itself. It's complex because you don't have to have the person there because ultimately it's for you. And you may not be able to, right? Because the person may be deceased. So what happens if you, you have them across the table, you understand their story enough to understand why they did what they did. But if that person does not feel any remorse, take us there, please. Once again, it's not for the other person, it's for yourself. But isn't it, is it made more difficult if? I think it's more difficult. I'm thinking about it for myself because to, to be truthful, I'm not an expert. I'm really someone that just holds space for people. I'm a storyteller. I'm a coach. I coordinate this incredible traveling art exhibit of arresting narratives and photographs. I'm also human. And I noticed in my body when you talked about being remorseful, that there was that little, yeah, I want them to be remorseful. I want them to feel it. I want them to make apology. I want them to be accountable. I know for others and in conversations that I've had with others, those individuals are entirely comfortable saying, no, don't really care if they're alive. Don't really care. If they're in front of me, don't really care if they're remorseful or not. I'm doing this to release for myself. I'm doing this to heal myself because what's happening in my life isn't working and I need to do something different and I'm ready to do something different. And the challenge is the readiness because in the height of the injury, in the height of the pain, in the height of the suffering, to talk about forgiveness, I think, is not appropriate. I think that there's a time and a place and a journey, as I shared earlier, without a destination, that leads people to the healing that they're choosing. And yes, you can be offered a prod here and there or an opportunity to take that space for inquiry. However, no one can make you forgive. And the way that we choose to forgive or not forgive is entirely unique. It's so incredibly complicated and layered. It's almost like the onion, you know, taking off the layers of the onion and the what if and the what if and the what if. I, I certainly understand that forgiveness is, first of all, f- for me. And mm-hmm. as I've been preparing for our chat today and reading and doing all that stuff I was doing, I think for myself, it's the only way I could move on or even be whole again if something, like, if, if it was, a, if there was an egregious act against me or mine. And I can, I can see the remorse thing, but if someone shows remorse, my forgiveness of them can surely do a lot for them too, can it not? The first word that came into my mind was that you're participating in a transaction and it shouldn't really be about a transaction, yet potentially what you're suggesting is Yeah, it does do a lot if you see that person appear, present, offer remorse. They feel 
bad for what they've done. They're potentially accountable for what they've done and feel extremely light, light, lighthearted. I don't even know if lighthearted is the right word, but if you offer forgiveness to them and they offer remorse to you, it's kind of circular, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I didn't, and I, I didn't mean it even as an exchange or a barter or a mm. condition of, I just mean in terms of two separate people sitting at the table. I see it as transactional though. Yeah, but it's no, not I, a bad I, transaction. Yeah, I, but I, I think what I meant is just not to go into it with the mind of a transaction, but the, the transaction can happen. Perfect. You're absolutely right. You know, this is what's so interesting about restorative practice. I would like to talk about it because I've, I've referenced a couple stories mm-hmm. of people who chose to have that conversation in front of one another. And the case of Mary Johnson and O'Shea and also Shad Ali and the man that harmed these women, Shad did sit across the table also in prison in England with this man. And there was healing. There was remorse in both situations. And there was the offer of forgiveness by both persons. However, practitioners in the field of restorative practice, and it's been known as restorative justice also, believe that forgiveness is not a specific outcome. Just because that person is accountable for their actions, which is very specifically how the conversation starts. In restorative practice, it's very important that the individual who has harmed be accountable and share their story. And they do that first. And the individual who's been harmed, oftentimes the person who's been harmed is not living anymore, yet there are so many others who have been harmed. In the case of Mary and other family members of Mary's, multiple people who have been harmed, she has the option of sharing her experience of how O'Shea's behavior caused her to feel. She has made a decision how she's going to manage her life as a result of her taking the life of her son. And she has the option of offering forgiveness or not. The, the curiosity for me or the invitation that you provided to me to weigh in on was when you talked about remorse and you said, you know, if I see remorse and this person demonstrates that they are feeling pretty bad about what they did, it makes it easier for me maybe to forgive. And also my forgiveness may release some of the shame and the suffering that the person who caused the harm feels. So that's how I thought about it as a transaction, but not as a negative thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. As you were speaking, what I imagine, and this gives you an insight into my leisure time, is a, a, a puzzle board, a, like a jigsaw puzzle. And you have these pieces, you know, whether it's the people or the actions the, the injury, the remorse, the forgiveness, and, and they're all there. Now, whether they actually fit together properly may or may not happen. Correct. It's not, there is not a recipe. Yeah. So th- sometimes they will fit together and, and, and that's probably great when it does, or I hate the word nice, but it, it eases perhaps the situation if they fit together, but they may not fit together. And that's just a fact of life. And there's, there are practitioners that do work around forgiveness that are very specific to teaching steps and plugging in things that one does in order to forgive similar to a 12 step program 
or similar to Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, that you have to go in a particular direction in order to reach that North Star, which is forgiveness. And if you do all those things in the order, then you're going to acquire it. And I'm not of that ilk. I don't believe that you have to take particular steps. I think that there are some intrinsic ways of being that organically lead us on a path in a particular order. Like when I think about being hurt by someone's behavior and being pained by it. And then I move to this place of being angry about it and self-righteous about it. And then with time, there's a healing. Yet there's no knowledge of what the outcome will be. There's no timeline that says in X number of minutes, hours, days, months, years, I'm going to feel a certain way. Everybody is different. And there's the whole language of not forgiving, which we haven't even touched on, that people choose not to forgive. And they're perfectly okay with that. Others don't forgive for a long period of time and then they realize it's not working for them and look for ways to heal. I just want to reassure all my listeners that Louisa does <laughs> not have my notes in front of her. Because I, I was going to ask if there was a process or a path, and you've answered <laughs> that. And I'm, <laughs> I must admit, I'm a little relieved with your answer because um, I have my own issues with Kubler Ross's process and steps. Yeah. So, and then I was going to ask that you know, like, not to give anyone an easy out, but are there people who will never get to that place where they can forgive? And you've just answered that too. So that's I appreciate that. Mm. I want to. I'm backtracking on my notes now. I was listening to the F word podcast. There was a story and this is going like totally off into a left field. I think perhaps there was a story there of a white woman who apologized for her forefather's contribution to apartheid in Canada. Right now there's huge awareness of the atrocities against the indigenous people mm -hmm. carried out by the settlers. If I were to apologize for those atrocities and, and I, sincerely apologize help me understand if that has meaning if one person apologizes to many people for the sins of many other people so it and if one indigenous person forgives me or the woman in south africa what is the impact I, i'm not being very clear here and i apologize but what do you mean though <laughs> is that are you asking if let me let me clarify. You asked me if a person can apologize on behalf of a whole community of people. Well, I I think the they can, but it, is there any substance? Is there substance to that, or would it almost be between two people? Of I apologize what my people did to your people. So it it once again you're sitting across the table, and it might have meaning hopefully for those two people at the table. It's so interesting. There are so many responses that I could give you. I can I can give you an example of something that's close to my heart. There are a couple of examples. One actually happened in a question and answer that I experienced just two weeks ago where I made an online presentation at a conference in the Jewish community around forgiveness as a way of well-being. And I did my presentation and I felt really good about it. And the questions and answers are always so unsettling because you don't know what people are going to ask. And it's on Zoom or a virtual platform, which is even more complex. And the very first question that this person asked was a man likely in his 70s and he goes so does this mean I have to forgive Hitler you've talked about strategies for forgiveness I have to forgive Hitler for wiping out six million Jews 
and others. And my response to him was, no, it's not your job or your role to forgive. And I shared the story of a woman who was a mentor to me. Her name is Eva Kaur. She passed away two years ago. She was a Mengele twin. So she and her sister Miriam were participants of Joseph Mengele's horrible twin experiments at Auschwitz. And she and her sister survived. They both had to survive. Both twins had to survive in order to have a chance at life. Because if one of the other twins died, their sister or brother would die too. And Eva Kors spent a really long time having vengeance and anger and resentments towards Hitler and towards the SS and the German people and so on and so forth until she realized that she needed to release that anger and vengeance. And she said that she forgave, that she forgave to release herself. And she made it very clear that she did not forgive on behalf of the Jews, that she was not speaking up as a Jewish woman on behalf of Jewish people worldwide. And yet again and again and again, individuals such as the gentleman that asked me that question rise up when she speaks and say, how dare you for forgiving on behalf of the Jews? Now, if she chooses to forgive, she's forgiving for herself. She's not forgiving as part of a community. And yet, I know you're asking a slightly different question, which is potentially as a person who fits into a category where you have taken a stand and saying, I feel shame and I want to make apology for the way that my people have treated your people that I want to stand up and and make apology. I think you can do that. I think if you're representing the entire community, the entire race, I think it's a little more complicated. And it made me think about a couple other things where countries and governments go round and around and around and where we as citizens or residents of those countries have an expectation that our politicians forgive or make apology. Make apology, United States and Hiroshima. Make apology. Has there been a United States president? The closest would have been Obama that actually made apology. Has there ever been an apology in the United States of the way that Indigenous people, American Indians, have been treated. In Canada, I think there has been an apology. And what clout does that have? I'm just, you know, all of this is not my personal opinion. It's just a space for inquiry, uh, to wonder, to unpack it. And I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all. I think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, of South Africa and Rwanda. And there's an interesting piece there with the so many people who were killed, murdered in South Africa, for example, and in Rwanda, for example, that if we were ensuring that every single person who had harmed another person in those communities stood trial, I believe that still would be trials to this day. And so what those communities, I don't know if the word is attempt, but created was an opportunity for people to be accountable for their actions and to share their story with community and to seek some form of, I don't even know how I would describe it. They're accountable. It's not that they're going to be forgiven for, their actions, but the virtue of accountability has allowed them to not have to bear on their shoulders 
the longest possible sentence. And every single person had a different experience. I don't know how, even if it's worth bringing that, it gets very complicated in the interview. So I don't even know if you're able to carve pieces out that that could help. But there are so many layers here. Yeah. My question would never have come into our talk today, except when I heard this piece on the podcast and I went, whoa, that's interesting. When we spoke a few weeks ago about getting this episode together, we talked about the fact that forgiveness, and you mentioned this earlier, does not mean forgetting. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? And are there any other misunderstandings about forgiveness that you can think of? I think the biggest misunderstanding is that if you forgive, you forget the act. To forgive does not mean that you wipe the slate clean in your head like an etched sketch and you don't remember. You will always remember. So that's a big stereotype and a big fear that people have. Another is that you're condoning what the person did if you forgive, like a flippancy. Well, you murdered my son. Well, that's okay. I'll forgive you. Like when you step on somebody's foot by mistake and you go, which I've done, will you forgive me? I can't believe I just stood on your foot. I've done it three times now. Can't believe I did that. That's more of a figure of speech. Uh, to forgive is, as I described right in the beginning of our conversation, I believe it's a gift you give to yourself and a gift you give to someone else and not something that you can necessarily ask for. You can, but you may not get it. Another thing that came to mind is this whole concept of radical forgiveness and numbers of people would disagree with me when one thinks of Dylan Roof, the person who killed a number of parishioners in the church in South, Car South Carolina, in Charleston, South Carolina, in the NE church. The parishioners forgave pretty automatically, and it was part of their faith that they were taught that this is what you do. I wouldn't say that radical forgiveness is a stereotype. I would say that there are different ways to forgive and that you don't have to go along a prescribed path. So the, the response to the question would be much about back to those steps again or back to a faith-based denomination. Or if you don't have faith, these assumptions that are made that you have to do it a certain way. And in the work that I have begun to do that I really appreciate the opportunity, providing the space for people to consider what it will take to forgive, what it will take to release pain and suffering, what their journey is, what they need to experience rather than looking at a list of steps that say, you do this, you do this, you do this. Hmm. <laughs> this is a, a huge subject, obviously, and I, I really appreciate you helping us gain some insight. And I know you've said a couple of times today that, you know, you're not an expert, but I think just your experience with the different pieces of the puzzle on the table are, are off. They give us good insight and give you a knowledge that many of us don't have, perhaps never will have. So as I say, I appreciate that. Is there anything else about forgiveness that we haven't discussed that is important? It's interesting. You should ask that because I was thinking I have to remember to say this. There are some days that you will think that you have traveled the path and that you are close to that North Star. And all of a sudden, like Fred Flintstone, you slam those brakes on and go, what on earth was I thinking? I don't forgive you anymore. 
there's this whole process of forgiving and unforgiving and re-forgiving and unforgiving. And it's this backwards couple steps, forwards a step, back half a step experience. The most important thing, you know, as Kabat-Zinn said, John Kabat-Zinn, wherever you go, there you are. The most important thing is to be gentle with yourself and to think intrinsically about what it is that's, that works for you because this is you. This is your vessel. This is what makes sense for you, not what makes sense for your cousin or your best friend or your professor. And the language of how we approach this subject is very important. Another person at this conference that I was talking with in the Q&A said to me, I've been listening to what you're saying about forgiveness and you've shared some really powerful things. Does this mean I have to forgive my father who didn't walk me down the aisle when I got married? And when he died, he wouldn't allow me to come stand by his bedside. And I was going, oh, my God, how do I answer this question? You know, I have to respond. I didn't have the beauty of a pre-recorded podcast that you can select the really good stuff, right? And I responded and I said, did you walk down the aisle? And she said, yes. And I said, then you're a survivor. Because if you didn't walk down the aisle, perhaps you were a victim. And I thought that was a really good response. The the challenge is that I'm not here to answer the question for people. I'm here to invite them to dig deep and figure out the journey that they want to take. And for me to hold space for them and to help them through storytelling, whether it's experiencing the exhibit, whether it's reading, whether it's writing, whether it's being an artist or moving one's energy to restore to a place where they feel more whole because where people are when they come to do this work, they have recognized that what they're doing isn't working anymore. And a really another good story about that is Bud Welch. So Bud Welch lives in Oklahoma City and his daughter lost her life in the Oklahoma City bombing. And he tells the story of being extremely distressed of course at the loss of life and wanting terrible things to happen to Timothy McVeigh and then he realized after he had spent a ton of time churning in his own misery and maybe drinking a little too much and not experiencing life as he knew it that his daughter Julie had lost her life and he was a father and that Timothy McVeigh had a father too. And he sought out Timothy McVeigh's father because Timothy McVeigh's father was not the person who had planted the bomb and he actually was a victim, survivor. And they ended up becoming friends and a man that was very much opposed to reconciling or even getting to a place where he would feel that he could live his life comfortably changed his stance immediately and both Timothy McVeigh's father Bill and Bud started participating in the anti-death penalty movement even though Timothy McVeigh wanted to be sentenced to death and ultimately was so it's this place where people hit bottom, right? And they have to, that's the traditional response. You know, what what led you to fall on your knees and 
hit bottom or not be able to go on anymore, there's usually something within ourselves where we're like, can't do this anymore, have to do something different. It is more miserable to stay in this place. Yet, it is one of the scariest things that you can possibly do. And I know from my own experience, I've spent plenty of time standing on the top of the precipice, you know, like, am I going to jump into that cold water? And how is that going to feel? And you know, when you jump into cold water, how that feels for maybe five seconds, and then it's the most delicious thing ever, right? So I like to think that I just don't talk the talk. I walk the walk. I have my own forgiveness stories. And I have stories that I can share of people in my life that I know that ask the question, is this what justice looks like? To see my father, for example, said, Samantha Lawler, a friend of mine, handcuffed to a bed in a county hospital, dying because he had lived so many years with HIV AIDS and had so many strokes. And he did indeed kill Samantha's mother, her father. But is this what justice looks like to see this man in misery? It took her years to figure out that that's not what justice looked like, that she needed to be in a place where she created her own change because what she was doing didn't make her life a very good life. I'm a little over the place, but these stories kind of weave a little bit, don't they? Mm -hmm. You're very forgiving, by the way. No, no, because interestingly, I'm going to glance at the clock just for a moment, but our listeners at this point might be in one of two camps and I'm not suggesting for a second there's only two camps I'm only going to talk about two of them Um, one might be that they need to learn more so that they can forgive or consider forgiving or they might just be thinking I don't mean just they might be thinking this is really important and I want to be part of this thing this forgiveness the, the forgiveness project where can I learn more? So can you give people a few sites to explore? I mean, there is the Forgiveness Project yeah. and including your own. We haven't spoken specifically what the Forgiveness Project is. The Forgiveness Project tells stories of people who in the face of their own atrocity have responded without vengeance. And the organization has grown from just the exhibit to a multitude of programs that include the exhibits, being able to view stories online. I believe there are over 200 stories online. There are different courses that one can take. There is also an archive for, I don't think the right word is archive, There are a set of resources for students of younger ages, school age. There are opportunities to learn about each and every one of everyday people who have had experiences that you can say only happens to somebody else, but yet there's six degrees of separation. There are are people who are well-known, people who aren't well-known, And you can dig deeper by learning their story and then going to their websites. So there is the Forgiveness Project. We have two books. I say we because I am the North American contractor for the North American exhibit. That would be the United States and Canada for our Canadian listeners. The book, The Forgiveness Project Stories for a Vengeful Age, with forwards by Desmond Tutu and Alexander McCall-Smith was published in 2015, I do believe. And it's a number of those stories that are part of the Forgiveness Project archive. Approximately 40 of them handpicked by Marina Cantacuzino, our founder, and, and a phenomenal chapter that is entitled Forgiveness is as mysterious as love. Forgiveness is as mysterious as love. Dame Anita Roddick, 
she was the founder of a UK business called The Body Shop. We have it in Canada. Oh, you do, which is one of the first non-cruelty makeup and skincare companies. Unfortunately, she has passed away in the last number of years. However, her daughter continues the foundation. Then we have this really great book that came out just in the last year or so named Forgiveness is Really Strange. And it's a graphic novel that has beautiful photographs that actually look like the photography. And that is as powerful for adults or it is for teenagers. I myself have a website. Well, I should actually say there's a website for the Forgiveness Project, theforgivenessproject.com. And then my website is consultantshext.com. It shows a little bit about the work that I'm doing in family healing. I'm a mediator as well as a coach. My dream is to move from highly contentious, argumentative people who don't want to work to create change in their lives and want to actually dig deep and figure out how to have a more peaceful life. And I believe that being that person that wants to create change comes from within us as individuals first. And then we reach out and we say, can you create space for me? Would you be willing to work with me? rather than go work with her. Because when you're told to work with somebody, you're not going to do it. So my interest is working with individuals, hearing people's stories and helping them create positive change in their lives. And I'm thinking there are numerous other resources that I could provide you if you wanted to add that, if people were interested in terms of books. And I have a short book list that I could share with you The work of Fred Luskin at Stanford University is pretty powerful. He's been studying forgiveness for many, many years. Everett Worthington also, he's here in the United States. I believe he's out in Virginia. I'll send, I can send you. Yeah, everything. That's great. So I'll make sure all of the links you send me are in the show notes. Sort of the advantage of writing up those show notes. Listeners, it's not often I end an episode either exhausted or with nothing left to say. Uh, Today, I'm both. Anguish happens. All your reactions to it are your reactions to it. Ultimately, though, without forgiveness, it can eat at you from the inside out. Without forgiveness, you may never be the person you could be. If you've been hurt, I hope this talk with Louisa has given you some insights. If someone in your life could benefit from listening to our conversation today, make sure you send them the link. And if you're not comfortable doing that, contact me at twoboomerwomen.com and I'll send them the link in the kindest way possible. If you have comments on today's episode, leave them wherever you're listening or at twoboomerwomen.com forward slash join dash the dash conversation. Feel free to leave stars. It helps us grow. And have you clicked the subscribe or follow button yet? Do it now and you won't ever miss another episode. If you'd like to be a guest on podcast or know someone who'd make a great guest, there's an application form at the website too. And remember, we have monthly man day where I interview a man with a message for boomers. As I mentioned at the beginning of today's show, December's guests are all about incentivizing you with ideas and tips on starting the new year in a meaningful way. Last week, my guest had great great information and really good tips for regaining or maintaining health as we get older. And those are lifestyle ideas, not another diet. Next week, we're a little lighter with a guest who works with women who are solopreneurs or want to be, and at our age, more than a little interested in the concept of being a digital nomad. And that's a boomer style, digital nomad. There is a difference. December 22nd, I'll replay the most listened to episode of 2021. And on the 29th, I'm going to review the year, my guests, and the myriad of topics we've visited. 
That will be a great episode to catch as you can jump directly to an episode of interest without browsing through months of show notes. <laughs> now, for someone who suggested she had nothing left to say, I think I've just done quite a bit. <laughs> Louisa Hext, thank you so much for being my guest today. Forgiveness is such an important subject, albeit complex, and you really did give us some insights into aspects of that, so I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be with you, and I hope that I was able to offer some sense of lightness and not heaviness as we exit this most challenging year into a a lovely new year. Thanks again. Thank you. Have a great rest of the week.